Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy Madrid Sikich. On today's episode, we are discussing the fourth song of Schubert's Winterreise, Erstarung. If you haven't heard the first few episodes of our season, you might want to go back and check those out so that you're up to date with our journey. If you are a fan of the podcast, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all the usual places. And please, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. In fact, to stir some excitement for the podcast, I will be giving away a copy of Ian Bostrich's book, Schubert's Winter Journey to one lucky listener. All you have to do is write a review for the podcast and send a screenshot of your review to our email, followtheleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Joining me today as co-host extraordinaire, I have Brian Sickage with me in the house. <laughs> what's up, leader nerds? What is up? What's what what's what's going on well, for you on the other uh, side of the we've sofa? We've been brunching, so, <laughs> so I'm uh, halfway into a little Paloma beverage, and we made pancakes and bacon and yet all, again. All the I was gonna say yet again. I don't have a bribe for you to be here for today. In fact, you made all of those delicious. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know how that works out, actually. But I'm, but know. I'm happy to be here either way. Uh, you'll you'll be rewarded at some point in time, I'm sure. Oh, do you, would you would you like a free copy of Ian Bostridge's book, Schubert's Winter Journey? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would ever crack the cover on it. I depend on you for all my leader knowledge and tidbits of information. <laughs> as so. you should, as you should. I can't remember the last time I was this excited to record a podcast episode. I mean. I am always like genuinely excited to like talk about some nerdy knowledge. This is true. But today has an extra spicy little layer of excitement because I uncovered something. How many layers of spice? Like if Um, you take the chili emoji and stack them up? That's a great question. Four chilies? Maybe like, uh, no, honestly, I'm going to have to say this is like a seven chili situation. (laughs) Seven out of 10 or like seven out of seven? Yeah, like 7 out of 10, okay. which I think is pretty high. I'd like to see what 10 out of 10 chilies is. 
Um, well, I'll let you know when it happens. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm sure you'll probably hear it. I'll probably be like, you'll hear me in the other room. <laughs> I'll be sitting at my Ten desk. chilies high. <laughs> Just hear you yelp. So today we are, we have a, a seven chili situation, uh, and it's because I uncovered something completely brand new to me as I was researching for today's episode. Are you ready? Let's go. Let's go. things at the end of our last episode he was moping he was just like beside himself and struck with like he went from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows well, i wouldn't say it was the highest of highs well i mean he went from being like emotionally stable and like he kind of had a he kind of had a grasp on things yeah to just being an absolute train wreck emotionally <laughs> yeah he was a train wreck he was for in sure. the, he was in the pits yeah, so in our last episode, we covered two songs. We covered uh, Die Wetterfahne, where he's like mad about, you know, he's kind of angry about the situation, right? That he wishes he had seen the weather vane on the house because he might have been clued into the fact that a loyal woman was not in the house and so he might never have bothered. And then after that, he... The last song we covered was Frozen Tears. And remember, he oh, didn't even yeah. know how long he'd been weeping for. He wondered at how his mm-hmm. tears could be so tepid because he felt that they were coming from his red hot breast and that they should melt the entirety of the winter's ice. So I remember he was kind of like horrified at the fact that he doesn't even know how long he's been weeping. He came into awareness of it and was just like, oh, shoot. Yeah. Like, where's this coming from? Maybe I was brunching it too hard last weekend. <laughs> I mean, maybe, 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 yeah, I, I do remember that, but this is all a great re- little uh, <laughs> refresh course. Right, right, right. So if the last song was him being stuck in place and frozen rigid, this song is the complete opposite. Let's begin with a translation of the poem gonna thaw our boy out <laughs> yeah erstarung okay so let's pause there <laughs> <laughs> wow got so far i know so the word so the title of our fourth song is erstarung um and it's a bit tricky of a word to translate in the context of winterreise it's traditionally translated as numbness but it doesn't quite give us the fullness of the word so i'm going to give you a word salad of sorts to kind of fill out the meaning of this word i don't like that i just use the term word word salad salad. i don't like it it's bad it's bad estarung can be translated as rigidity solidification stiffness petrification ossification fossilization congealment what's your impression of of those words altogether uh like stuck in time or yeah. rigid or yeah petrification yeah petrification is a good know? is a good word Fossi- right? oh, there's literally the word fossilization <laughs> is that even a word fossilization it is I it guess. is a word um i really like ian bostrich's translation which is frozen stiff hmm. um and i think 
the reason that this is interesting is just kind of the way that Schubert set these words. And, and we'll get into that. Okay, so that's just the title. Here's the actual poem. I search in the snow in vain after her footsteps tracks, where she on my arm crossed the green field. I want to kiss the ground, penetrate ice and snow with my hot tears until I see the earth. Where can I find a flower? Where can I find green grass? The flowers are dead. The grass looks so pale. Should then no keepsake I take with me from here? When my pain is silent, who speaks to me then of her? My heart is as frozen. Cold freezes her image therein. If my heart ever melts again, flows also her image away. So I think we might not be necessarily surprised by any of these feelings, right? It seems kind of in line with what we've come to experience in our short time on this journey. It's on brand yeah. for, for where he's at. <laughs> Definitely on brand. <laughs> there are some interesting images in this, however, and we'll talk about them in a sec. But I'm wondering if, based on the poem you can guess how Schubert might have set this. Now, I know that you do have some familiarity with this cycle, but that you don't remember specifically I mean, which songs are rich. I mean, I've hardly exhibited, uh, you know, a command of the subject <laughs> to our listeners from week to week. <laughs> so. But based on those words, how might you think Schubert would have set it? Like musically, you're yeah. saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ah, with quarter notes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm literally just messing Reading with you. It. No, no, no. I actually uh, didn't read anything. Oh, uh, okay. No, I was literally just saying. He does use quarter, quarter notes. notes. Correct. He does use quarter notes. Um, it's going to be, obviously it's going to be a moody piece, mm -hmm. but there might be a little bit of beauty that comes out when he's talking about finding the flower, finding the green grass, like a tender moment, sort of like a longing, ah, something, something that's like a little more uh, melodic, something that's like a little more like a glimmer of hope, something beautiful. Very insightful. But then I feel like it would get moody again and go minor right away like i don't know if there's a, a shift into major versus then shifting back into minor <gasps> Ryan! oh shit where's my little i need the little buzzer with the air horn on it yeah i'll insert that here i'm, I'm getting to the good stuff <laughs> Ryan, um, so insightful. but then once again we get to like frozen we get to the morning part we get to the like his his coming back to realizing his situation and that there is no hope because I think it's kind of crazy. As soon as he says, if my heart ever, uh, ever melts again, flows also her image away. He's bummed that he's stuck. He wants to hope, but he also knows that as soon as he like becomes unstuck, he also doesn't want to move on from the grief because then he won't even be able to like, contemplate the little hopeful part again yeah yeah yeah. like so so he's he's just it's just a cluster all of these things that you're saying are awesome things so what we find in schubert's setting of this song is another case of obsession and this time it appears as obsessive panic which i think this dichotomy of stuckness or something being frozen with the panic um, and in a sense of frantic kind of searching, as we'll see, I, it's a really interesting dichotomy. The traveler is frantically looking for any sign of his love, any physical representation that their relationship existed. Now, this is quite tidily summed up in a few ways by Schubert's musical setting. Firstly, there's the quality of the piano's right-hand triplets. 
you're going to hear these triplets from the outset, and these triplets never stop. Well, they move down to the left hand for a little while, but essentially the feeling of the eighth notes are just omnipresent the entire time. Then there's a left hand melody, which starts with three quarter notes. Aha, quarter notes! <laughs> I knew I was onto something. You were correct. Uh, so it starts with three quarter notes, then plays an accented triplet figure on beat four, which propels the listener further into the next measure, almost as if we're compelled to look into the next measure. So those two elements together, the triplets, and then this frantic searching sound like this. different from Gefrona Trenen, right? Where immediately there's tons of movement. To seal the deal and help us truly understand that the frantic pathos is intentional, the vocal line then comes in and it's here and it's there and it's everywhere. Ich such im Schnee vergebens nach ihre dritte Spur, wo sie an meinem Arme durchstrich die grüne Flur. You know, it's crazy because as soon as you, like, I've heard the song multiple mm -hmm. times, but oftentimes I'll forget which translations go with, you know, there's, right, it's right. such a big song cycle that it's, at least for me being the non-performer and non- mm -hmm steeped in it musician if mm -hmm. that makes sense um as soon as you hear it it just clicks this is so perfect it's so genius it just like it makes sense like you feel it um so anyways as as i was listening i was just like oh yeah yeah like, of course is, it's this of one course it's yeah this of course one. it's yeah. this one surely yeah so that vocal line it's up it's down it's just everywhere it kind of reminds me a little bit of veta fauna in that way but somehow less grounded to the earth, which is ironic because the ground is the very place that our protagonist is looking to find some trace of his lost love. He remembers when she walked with him arm in arm across this field when it was green. Now it's covered in snow, and he declares how he wishes he could penetrate the ice and snow with his tears that he might see that very ground upon which they walked. Now, this point is interesting to me because if you remember in the last song, he talked about being confused as to why his tears should be so tepid. Remember, he's confused because his breast is so red hot that how, how could his tears not burn through it all? Now he's saying that they are hot and that he will melt the ice in the snow so that he can see the ground. Our boy has some temperature issues. <laughs> I know, he truly does. But this is what I mean when I say that I think there are just so many facets in this prism of emotion that they seem to all be ever present we just happen to light one up over another at any given time so with this pairing of songs gefrona trenen and erstarung his tears are both hot and lukewarm which could be maddening if you're in this kind of emotional state to be feeling things that seem so opposed to each other but you're aware that both of these feelings are there I mean, of, of course, he's, he's driven a little bit out of his mind by this. 
I liked your use of the phrase prism of emotion. <laughs> uh, but shout out to Anchorman. I'd like to call it a glass case of emotion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, it does, very similar yeah, things. Yeah, it, do, it does remind <laughs> me of that. <laughs> On the topic of him searching the ground, it's been noted by many that the left hand of the piano really represents this search. With the melody placed so low, the listener is forced to look down, as it were, drawn into the search on the ground for the flower, the green grass, any keepsake that he might be able to take with him. I just love all those little diddle-a-dee, diddle-a-dee. You can see he's like looking here, he's looking there. Kind of tickles the emo middle schooler that <laughs> still resides within me that he speaks of needing some kind of keepsake to take with him because once his pain is silent, who will speak to him about her? Oh essentially, my gosh, so emo. <laughs> essentially, the only thing he has to remind himself of her is the pain. And if that's not over-the-top angsty drama, then I don't know what is. <laughs> but I love it. I'm here for it. Twice, the right hand takes the melody with stark octaves. The first time this happens is in the second verse when he talks about penetrating the snow with his tears. piercing quality to them, I'd say. The second time that these piercing octaves happen is in the fifth verse when he talks about how his heart is frozen and the cold has frozen her image in there. Mein Herz ist wie erfroren, kalt ihr Bild darin, trillt jedes Herz mir wieder fließt I think these octaves, once more, are a stark, penetrating reminder of the frozen quality of his heart. But Schubert ends this time with an elegant upward movement in the piano octaves, while the voice melts downward, reinforcing the words of the poet that her image would flow away from him were his heart ever to melt. That sounds like this. Mein Herz ist wie erfroren, kalt Bild darin, schwirrt jedes Herz mir wieder, fließt auch ihr Bild, ihr Bild dahin, ihr Bild dahin. 
hear it like melting away. Musical representation of that. You do such a good job with those octaves with your tiny little hands. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Yeah, <laughs> I feel absolutely. like it's simultaneously it's a compliment like a and a dick. <laughs> no, it's both. Oh, what, it's what, very, what, very well executed. Thank you. I, I accept your compliment, I suppose. Um, I love this idea of he wants to heal. He has this idea of he would like his heart to not be frozen, but he can't allow that to happen. Because as he was saying, then then he has nothing left of right. her. Right now, all he has is the pain. And so that dichotomy of wanting to heal, but not feeling like you can let it go. It's super interesting. The last thing I want to point out is the gorgeous turn to the major sub-mediant key. Hey, I call it again. <laughs> Going into the major, baby. Yeah, and you were right about this. Um, you, you guessed it entirely. I was a guess. You know, it was full authority. I, I know. I know what's happening no, you here. did not know that it was this song, though. No, I, I didn't. It was just a guess. Yeah, you, you are right. I don't um, know what I'm but about. specifically, do you remember what happens when we turn to the major key in Vinterreise? Is it like a, a sense of like the hope or remembering of times gone by? Yeah. So when we turn to the major, it's usually because we are reminiscing about something in the past. Mm. Here he is talking about finding flowers and grass. He remembers a warmer time when these things were in bloom. The green pastures. Yeah. Free range. That sounds like this. It's not a moment that lasts very long, however, as he quickly notes that the flowers are dead, the grass is pale. And so we very quickly move on from that moment of reminiscing. Also, what is the German word for grass? Gras. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what? Nice. Actually, I think here he uses the word rasen. I thought I heard the word grass in there. He uses both words, actually. Oh, yeah, he uses interesting. Both. Mm -hmm. So they well, have two words for like, grass. Like is one is a green grass and one's like a... No, no, no. So like how we have the word grass and the word turf. And they both um, refer to the same thing. Tricky. Yeah. Tricky, tricky. Okay. So I think those are all the things I wanted to cover before we take a listen to mm. the entire song. Any questions before we do? Nope. Once again, you will be hearing the vocal magic of Dr. Tyler Reese singing along to the accompaniment of yours truly. Vergebens nach ihre dritte Spur, wo sie an meinem Arme durchstrich die grüne Flur. Ich such im Schnee vergebens nach ihre dritte Spur, wo sie an meinem Arme durchstrich die grüne Flur. 
that you were following along on the translation as you were listening and then I was realizing oh why don't I do the same thing because so often I'm involved you know in, in in the production and it really does make sense I love Ian Bostridge's uh translation so much frozen stiff especially for that last verse where he talks about his heart being frozen and that the cold has frozen her her image inside of it just it makes sense so he can simultaneously be frantically looking around you know expending his energy to 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 find something to remind him of her while maintaining this frozen heart so that her image stays stays within it so this is the part where normally I'd say, and now let's move on to the next song of Winterreise. However, we are instead going to discuss the predecessor to Erstarung. You didn't know there was one, did you? Not I. <laughs> Neither did I, which is why I am so excited about today's episode, because I truly learned something brand spanking new, that there even was a predecessor to Erstarung. In all of my research about Erstarung, I kept running across mentions of this song called Imvalda with text by Ernst Schulze, 
Literally every source made mention of it. So, figuring I wouldn't be honoring the leader nerd empire if I didn't investigate, I wound up down this very deep, very interesting rabbit hole of, like, sexual psychopathology slash erotomania intrigue. Are you ready <laughs> to hear a story? I mean, I guess so. Is this gonna? Is this gonna be an arousing story? What's? <laughs> what am I in for here? Uh, no, it's. I, I'm like, oh, okay. I was like getting nervous uh, there for a second. It's not titillating. If that's <laughs> titillating, titillating, titillating. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. But it is absolutely bananas. Not so. Oh, it gets a little graphic. So this song, Invalda the predecessor to Erstarung. Well, the text of it was written by Ernst Konrad Friedrich Schulze. Schulze was born in the German town of Zelle in 1789. There's a picture of him. What a handsome chap. <laughs> he is handsome, right? Which is part of his problem. And you can even see, like, from this, this drawing of him, he looks... I think it was Susan Ewens or maybe it was Graham Johnson who, who says he's this fiendish rake. Like you can tell he kind of looks like a playboy. A yeah, little. he's yeah. up to no good, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is just spot on. Now, this is very interesting. His first biographer admitted so much truth about his life that many people don't really know the full true story about Schulze. And not that Wikipedia is the ultimate source for historical information, but if you do look him up on Wikipedia, it literally mentions none of what I'm about to tell you. I think that maybe his first biographer was partial to him for one reason or another. I'm not really sure why, uh, but he essentially omitted anything about him that was not flattering, which was quite a lot of information. So basically... Schulze's deal was that he was simultaneously wildly narcissistic and insecure. His mother died when he was two years old, and his father had various wives after that. And as he grew, he was said to be an obstinate and uncommunicative boy. It was just kind of expected that he was not going to do well in life because he was so undisciplined. Now, he was aware of what his family thought of him, which I think is kind of sad. You know, he... He was aware that his family didn't think much, didn't think that they were, he was going to amount to much. And so his case could be one of those debates over nature versus nurture. I, I really do think that his family had a lot to do with how he turned out. But as he grew, he realized that he was going to need to cultivate an outward persona that was entirely different than his natural state. So he became an absolute dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious about this. He used his wit to deride and mock people and came to be known as this super witty, sharp guy who always had a retort for something, while at the same time exhibiting the exact opposite behavior at home. Part of the reason he was so mean and, and derisive to others was so that he could seem superior. He was not shy about the fact that he was aggressively cultivating this fake persona. Susan Ewens, and of course, I'm going to quote Susan Ewens, because of course she wrote about Schulze in her book, Schubert and His Poets. She says this, and I quote, in a letter to Fritz von Bülow of 19 March 1810, he wrote that in company, one must adopt a definable character, 
cut to the mold of elegant society, lest one count for naught, and that he had chosen to be a malicious wit who loved nothing better than to satirize others. This, he continued, could not fail to make an impression upon people of ordinary and unrefined habits of thought. In further writings, you can see he is so superbly gleeful at the fact that he thinks he's pulling one over on people. Just listen to this thing he said. What one cannot be, one must at least appear, and in this art I have fortunately been very successful. In my first years at the university, when I hardly knew anything, people thought I was very learned. When I was introduced into society, and due to my dullness, kept silent, people thought I was very gifted. When, from irritation at the boredom I felt in most company, I waxed malicious, people took me for a thoroughly witty creature. When I did anything praiseworthy out of a momentary rash impulse, perhaps also out of arrogance, people believed that I must be a paragon of magnanimity and generosity. The world wishes to be deceived, therefore I will deceive it. As disagreeable as that might be, the worst is yet to come. He ends up meeting these two sisters, Cecilia and Adelheid, at a tea party. Adelheid is the older sister, and about her, he has this to say. The elder sister, who is rather like a bagpipe that does not sound equally pleasant to all listeners, to many she seems pretty, but to me, she has a monkey's face. So many problems with that, but okay. A bit harsh. A bit, a bit. Here is what he had to say about the younger sister, Cecilia. A beautiful, sweet, ethereal being, with both spirituality and passion in every feature of her face. She has a brilliant mind and is very refined, but takes great pains to hide these good qualities under a bushel. She is emotional by nature and coquettish by custom and fashion, and perhaps could not love unless she were idolized. More flattering, but... Still problematic for sure. Oh, and by the way, he gave summaries of all the women at the tea party in this same manner. And some of them, they were Did just... Did he just like journal? He would go home and oh, just like... Oh, he wrote so much, which I think was actually part of his like pathological mm. condition, which we'll get into a little bit more. Eventually, he decided that he is going to seduce Cecilia, not because he loves her, but almost as like, a project to see what he can win. At the beginning, he spends more time obsessing over his competition for her affection than he does actually trying to win her affection. At various social gatherings, he is incredibly malicious to every man who might be a potential suitor for her, and eventually she asks him about this, and he admits to her that it is a mask that what he's doing isn't really him. So he wasn't shy about this fact that he had these two different personalities. A month after this encounter with Cecilia, he writes in his diary, The booty is mine, and Zolms has had to abdicate the field. I am the declared lover and am privileged as no one else before me has been. Such slang. Again, extremely problematic, the right? The booty, though, the is he talking about just the treasure, or he, is he actually talking no, about No, he's booty? talking about her. Yeah. So I don't know if the word had that connotation booty, back booty, then. Booty, 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 whatever that song is. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't think it had that connotation yeah. back then, but he's the fact that he's referring to her as a booty to be won, a prize to be won, is just 
so problematic. Pretty he sick. he wasn't concerned about her as a person. He was just concerned about her as a conquest of his. And here's the thing. The two of them had basically nothing in common and weren't even a match for each other personality-wise. She was a German nationalist, and he loved foreign, particularly French things. Their literary tastes were misaligned. She liked a quiet domestic life, and he yearned for a life of, of adventure. It was just so obvious that it was not a good match. The crazy thing is that he writes in his diary, Cecilia loves me. He was so out of touch with reality that he truly believes the words he invents to describe Cecilia's love for him, Cecilia's non-existent love for him. And this poor girl, she eventually becomes very ill with tuberculosis and on top of dealing with this illness and the fact that she is in fact dying, she also has to deal with this insufferably self-deluded man. He writes, keep in mind, she's dying. Cecilia seems to be deeply moved by my faithful devotion, my unselfish love. When she dies, alas, it is now only too probable. It will be with the thought that I loved her until death and that my love did not depend on her bodily charms. Barf. Was she a ever aware of anything that he wrote? I don't think she was aware of the fullness of it, but she was aware that he was obsessed with her, that he was constantly pursuing her, and he wrote a lot of letters, and he was spending a lot of time at the house. Um, I don't think she was aware of the fullness of it, but enough that she was definitely off-put. Like, mm -hmm. she could see through his good looks, through this, you know, persona that... Oftentimes, people lauded him for she could see through and, and, and was not romantically interested in him, just was not. So anytime he writes about it, it's completely made up. As Cecilia is dying, her family ends up not allowing him to see her that much. And when she does finally die, guess what he decides to do? He decides to write an epic romantic poem in celebration of his love for her. But it's not a genuine tribute born out of love for her. He sees himself as having this grandiose role in immortalizing her in the written word. He writes, You shall not depart unheralded. Your dust shall not vanish in the storms of time. What's more? Okay, are you ready for a twistaroo? The poem that he writes it ends up being more about her older sister, Adelheid, than it is about her. That's right. Ya boy did ye old switcheroo. But this time, it's so much worse. Emphasis on the so much. He just shifted on to the sister that was still yeah, alive. Yeah, so here's the thing. He makes up this story that his devotion to the older sister is a continuation of his love for the younger sister that died. So he again makes up this love story in his head that they are destined to be together, them this time being Adelheid and, and Schulze. But they are not. That she loves him more than he had ever been loved. She did not. That they, the perfectly suited lovers, were exact mirror images of each other. They were not. He proposed marriage to her, but she refuses, saying that she actually never intended to marry. He proposes again four days later. She refuses again. Then begins the creepiest stalker situation that I think has ever been related to the world of leader. 
Schulze relentlessly pursues Adelheid. He writes her these gargantuan letters over and over and over, and she does not return, and he just keeps writing. No matter how she acted, he always interpreted as a sign. So if she, like, rebuffs him, he interprets it as a sign that she loves him. If she tries to placate him by giving him a gift, he takes it as a sign that she loves him. That's a, uh, a losing battle for her. Yeah, truly. Brutal. When he volunteers to join the military, he reads to her the list of those who've died in battle, hoping that she'll be so afraid of this possible fate for him that she'll declare love for him. And I think creepiest of all is the fact that he decides to write her a diary. And in this diary, for some reason, he decides that she needs to know about this. He goes into detail about every single love conquest he's ever had. I love it's called the love conquest. Like who who, yeah. who has multiple of those? I mean a conquest. Th- but that's that was his attitude about yeah. it. He never I don't think he ever truly loved in the sense that we we when people say they're in love with each other. He, I don't it wasn't about that. It was about the conquest for him. It was about him winning. It was about him yeah, it was conquering. Just a game. It was. Now Here's the thing about this diary. He is aware that he is writing this for an audience. There will potentially one day be an audience, whether it's Adelheit or whether it's other people, because he's reached some level of fame for his poetry. Um, So in this diary, we have pretty exacting detail about the things that are going on. But the thing is that he was so out of touch with reality, so narcissistic, so grandiose in his own estimation that... We can't be sure what's truth and what's not. And if you're wondering this whole time why he was allowed, how he repeatedly had access to Adelheid, it's because he was writing this epic love poem for Cecilia, right? So the family was allowing him into their house where like they gave him at one point like a locket of um, or a lock of Cecilia's hair because he's going to immortalize her in poetic word. And so he's allowed access to the house. Eventually, he's completely rebuffed and the family shuns him and, and he's not allowed to have access anymore. But the reason this went on for so long was, was because of that poem writing. Sadly, Schulze died of tuberculosis, the same disease that took Cecilia. He was only 28, but his relentless pursuit was at last at an end. Now, in hindsight, we can see that perhaps he was mentally unstable, that he had a true mental illness. During that time, such things were not really understood, and you know, people would just chalk it up to his his pride or his sense of arrogance, but if this happened in a in the modern day, honestly, he would be considered a stalker and there might even be some legal action taken against him. Restraining order, baby. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So this obsession did benefit us in that he wrote some pretty decent poetry. Decent enough that some of it inspired Schubert. Schubert took 10 songs from Schulz's Poetisches Tagebuch, which, by the way, was a poem diary of 100 poems all inspired by his obsession over Adelheid. One of these poems that Schubert set was the poem Imvalde. Well, actually, it was Imvalde hinter Falkenhagen, the title as the poet wrote it. But Schubert changed this title so that it would not be easily biographically connected to Schulze. 
We don't think that Schubert knew the ins and outs of Schultz's instability, but Susan Ewens points out that Schubert may have caught a whiff of insanity in Schultz's poetic diary. Okay, so the whole reason we're here is because this poem, this song, is the predecessor to Erstarung. So let me read you a translation of Imvalde. I wander over mountain and valley and over green heaths, and with me wanders my torment. It will never from me part. And even if I sailed over the wide sea, it would also come there with me. Indeed, many flowers bloom in the meadow. I have not seen them. There is one flower I see only on all paths standing. Toward it have I myself often stooped and yet have never plucked it. The bees buzz through the grass and hang on the blossoms. That makes my eyes dark and moist. I can for myself not forbid it. Her sweet lips, red and soft, indeed I have never hung so on you. Entirely lovely sing near and far the birds on the branches. Indeed I would sing with the birds gladly, but must I sadly be silent? For love's joy and love's gain, they each remain alone gladly. In the heavens I see fast winging the far-moving clouds. The waves ripple lightly and brightly. They must ever draw near and flee, but when the wind rests, cloud catches cloud, wave and wave. I wander here, I wander there, in storms and in clearer days, and yet I see it never more and cannot get a hold of it. O oh, love's longing, O oh, love's torment, when rests the wanderer once again? Obviously, we see similarities with themes in Winterreise, right? There's wandering, suffering, treading paths, sorrow, torment, a searching, a longing for rest. As far as the musical writing, you will hear so many things that are a foreshadowing of what we eventually hear in Erstarung. The obsessive triplets have a similar appearance. Those right-hand octaves we talked about are also present. You know what? Let's just take a listen. Oh, and a little side note. I've made a two-piano arrangement of this, so you won't be hearing the text that we just read, but you will be hearing the melody uh, as represented by a second piano, also played by myself.
Can you say the thing that you said while we were listening? Uh, I like, mean, when you were like, when you were like, connect? no, no, when you were like triplets. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I was freaking out about the triplets, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> while we were listening, you were asking about. I was just wondering about the the connection because I know you'd said it was the predecessor, but mm-hmm. I was trying to understand. So it's right. So I mean, of course, when comparing these two songs, you can hear so many similarities, and and I think the connection between the two, as you were asking, is. In the, in the first one, in Imvalda, so chronologically, Schubert wrote Imvalda first. You can see him working out some things. So we have that obsessive triplet, um, triplet motion, and we have those piercing octaves in the right hand. And um, I, I do think that when he went to compose Erstarung, he thought, hmm, there were some things in Imvalda that I'd like to rework or, or just more finely tune. And there's, there's some similarities between the two poems. And there's, there is some, I think, sexual charge. I mean, definitely in Imvalda when he's talking about, you know, the flower. Often when a, a flower is being plucked, we're taking that to, to have a sexual connotation. Um, and so... Uh, there is that that charge to it, and I think in Winterreise we see the same sort of thing. But in Imvalda, it's just not quite as mm, delicately worked. Which is right. It, it, it was like his less sophisticated, refined version, right? Do you feel yeah. like the 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 Winterreise? <laughs> 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 In his second version of it, it just has a little bit more polish to it, maybe. Yeah, so I think here's the thing. Schulze, as a poet, tended to overwork content. And Müller was the exact opposite. Müller used the least words possible to convey an idea. So, and we could see that in the way that Schubert set both of these things. Imvalda's 10 pages, there's six verses, and it harps on the same thing over and over again. And in fact, Graham Johnson says about this, um, you know, you heard that, that little theme. Well done. Maybe we should just listen to that version of it. No. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> I'll record the whole thing. Please do. <laughs> um, so that theme that you hear over and over again, Graham Johnson calls it like a ritornello. And what he says about that is that it gives the impression of going around in self-defeating circles, which is truly what Schulze did in his actual life. And I think in the Erstarung, we don't need to take quite as long to convey mm-hmm. the same type of idea that we're mm-hmm. frantically looking for something. In, in the first poem in Imvalda I think we're searching for this rest we're searching for some kind of release from from this torment that we've been in and mm-hmm. in Erstarung same sort of thing it just it's more economic the way that it's set uses mm-hmm. fewer notes so less is more exactly and I think that that gives us a more sophisticated song for sure but as we were saying, Imvalda, I just love that I've discovered this song. It's such a bop. It's such an absolute jam. I just can't stop listening to it, playing it, singing it. Oh, it's so good. I think maybe the the one last thing that I, I did want to say as well was that Imvalda does seem to be a 
fairly unhealthy representation of obsession, which makes a lot of sense when you compare Schulze to Müller. Müller, the poet of Winterreise, we always marvel at how he created such a dark work, considering he had a blessed life. Yeah, he didn't experience any of the angst or the, yeah, any of it. He had one kind of love thing that didn't work out for him, but it, it was not... Sounds tame. It, it did not happen at the same time that he wrote Winterreise either. And not saying that he couldn't have pulled from that experience, but uh, he just had a well... He was happily married, he had a good life, he had a good job, like... Things were really working out for it's him. It's kind of ironic that Schultz isn't the one that did all the text. Right, for, for Winterreise? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that that's partially, though, you know, his... He explored so many different styles and so many different ways of writing. And as Susan Ewens pointed out that I think Schubert could sense a bit of instability in mm. his poetry. It was interesting mm. you mentioned that he sort of wanted to break the link uh, between his work yes. and the actual mm -hmm. biography or the actual yes. life lived by Schultz. And and we don't think that Schubert knew like the extent of Schultz's insanity. Like, we really don't think that he knew that, but there must have been something about Schultz's writing that tipped Schubert off to, eh, like I'm going to take what I can from here. And actually, um, Schultz also wrote the text for a very, very famous Schubert song, uh, In Fruling. Very, very famous song um, that's one of Schubert's um, most well-known works and most often performed. So there were some real gems that we got from his work, but I don't think he would have been capable of writing as cohesive of a of a plot or a story because even in the Poetisches Tagebuch, there are parts where there there's just there is no plot. He explores so many different things in a variety of different ways that you can't there's, because he there's is not so a, unstable i think yeah, so yeah. you know he just didn't have the capacity to yeah so um yeah that that that's what i have to say about that what <laughs> a rant and i love it i'm here for it so i mean i don't i just find the connection between those two songs so cool i'm so glad i know about about the the both of them and i would love one time to program them in a recital back to back. I think that that would be a, a really, a really cool experience. Um, but I mean, I guess it's what we did here today. That's exactly what <laughs> That's we did. literally what I just, just did. In the podcast world. <laughs> podcast. Oh man. I think that ties things up for us today. Do you have any questions? No, nah, man. That was a jam. It really was. Well, thanks so much folks for listening to Follow the Leader. If you just can't get enough Winterreise in your life, then you might want to try singing Erstarung with me. You can find me on YouTube as Mandy Madrid Sikic. Click on the Winterreise playlist and the Erstarung accompaniment is there. Remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It really helps boost the podcast's visibility and helps other leader lovers like you find our work. And remember that for a limited time, you will be entered in our giveaway if you send a screenshot of your review to followtheleaderpodcast at gmail.com. I just love how official we now are with that email. I literally just made it yesterday wow power of the internet <laughs> send me messages guys if you'd like to provide additional support and keep season two running strong you can support me on patreon at patreon.com forward slash leader nerd that's l-i-e-d-e-r-n-e-r-d 
You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's, oh, I just spelled that. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. <laughs> so many letters. <laughs> so many letters. Oh, see you later, nerds. Sollten kein Angedenken mich nehmen mit von hier, wenn meine Schmerzen schweigen, wer sagt mir dann von hier? Sollten kein Angedenken mich nehmen mit von hier, wenn meine Schmerzen schweigen, wer sagt mir dann von hier? Podcasting life doesn't get much better than this. Three beverages next to me, water, bubbly, and a cocktail, and then an adorable puppy. That's very cute. It's very cute. Sorry for the interruption. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.